and I began to use it, and it revolutionized my life. I've used many kinds of studies in my life to study God's Word. I've used topical studies, doctrinal studies, studies of doctrines, studies of characters, and so forth. But in this particular method of study, you took each book of the Bible and found out who wrote it, why he wrote it, who it was written to, what their circumstances were, the background of the people he wrote to, the various problems that were involved in that setting. And when I finished with this, my entire idea of God's Word changed because I began to see the books of the Bible as a whole, as they were written. I was amazed when I finished to find out that we as Pentecostal people generally take things out of context rather easily and quickly. I do not say that we abuse the Word of God because we are teaching things that are true when we do it. We usually teach one God. We teach uh, Jesus' name baptism. We teach some of these doctrines that to us are very precious and wonderful. And the scriptures, any scripture we can find on it, we want to use it. However, we are guilty, if I could use that word, of many times taking the Word of God out of its context. So I studied more and more into the whole of the book, a complete book, without uh, looking into the little topical areas that it has to do with. And as I did so, I began to look especially at the epistles of St. Paul. And I was made to realize that the receiving of the baptism of the Holy Ghost is not the ultimate in our experience. It's only a birth certificate. That is only what gets us into the church. And after you're born, you need a whole lot more training. It would be disastrous to bring a child into this world and say, well, thank God we finally got him in. Here he is. He's in the world now. Praise the Lord. It's all over. It's just begun, really. It's just begun. And yet sometimes in the church we are guilty of bringing people to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Ghost and not carrying them then on step by step to a maturity. Well, the book of Acts is the book that starts us out in this glorious walk with God and brings us into that new birth. But these epistles, and especially St. Paul's epistles, are letters to help mature, strengthen, and guide the children of the Lord. Now, let me explain to you why I am using Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians. First of all, this, uh, these are the Apostle Paul's spiritual letters. The Apostle wrote a letter to the Romans, which we call a letter that deals with the natural man. Now, I know that Romans 8 is a letter or is a chapter about the spiritual man, and it's the most beautiful chapter in the entire New Testament having to do with the spiritual man. 
However, by and large, this book is written about and to a man who is in his natural state and needs to be born again, needs the power of the Holy Ghost in his life. The books of 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, and Galatians were written to carnal churches. You recall the letter he wrote, the first letter he wrote to Corinth? He wrote it because they were having a party spirit, some like Paul, some like Cephas, some like one man, some another. And because they had this kind of a spirit, he had the right to them. They also had other difficulties. They had problems with a man in the church that married his father's wife. They had problems with the gifts of the Spirit and their operation. They had come to the place that they were running services with tongues and interpretation, with prophecy and so forth. So it was a church filled with difficulty. It's a letter written to people who are carnal-minded. Now, they had spiritual gifts. They had a marvelous time in their services. But they were not really living for God as they should. They were carnal-minded. Just because a man can shout does not mean he is spiritual. Just because a person can speak with other tongues does not mean he is spiritual. You're only spiritual as the Spirit of God is changing your heart and making you what you ought to be. So then he wrote to the second, his second book to the same people, the second Corinthians, and that book, he vindicates his own ministry. He tries to explain why he is an apostle, because some were saying he was not. It, too, deals with troubles and problems within the Corinthian church. And then, after that, letter or another letter besides these two is the book to the Galatians. Now the Galatian church, of course, from Gaul, were a people that were rather fickle. If you know anything about the Gauls, they were a people quickly changeable. They could not make up their mind uh, about living for God. They would start out and change horses in the middle of the stream, we have often said of people like this, and because after the apostle brought to them this truth, they turned away from it, he wrote to them a letter which was very stinging, it's what is called a polemic or an argument, where he was fighting very hard to get them to come back to the truth. It's quite evident that they did, because when he wrote to the Corinthians, he said that the Galatians have made up an offering to sin to Rome. Uh, to Jerusalem, excuse me. So we do know that they were touched by Paul's letter and did repent of their sin. But he had to write these three letters to carnal churches. Now, tonight, I'm just giving you some background, and, and this uh, may not be what you're hoping for, nor will it be as exciting as I hope we can get into uh, as we go along. But let me first lay this foundation for you so that we can come to some things that I feel are very exciting and very important. So then there are three spiritual letters, or letters written to spiritual churches. The church at Ephesus was a very spiritual church. When I say spiritual, I mean they were able to understand things of the Spirit. They were able to understand this high thinking. And if you know anything about the Apostles' letters, you know that this one is 
could not have been written to Corinth or to Galatia. It's too uh, far above their thinking. They could have never figured it out. They didn't live there. They didn't understand that. Same is true with the Philippian church. The Philippian church is the most perfect church in the New Testament. It lasted longer than any of these spiritual churches. In fact, by the time John wrote, he said that the church at Ephesus had already left their first love. That was 30 years after the apostle wrote this letter. Also at that same time, the Colossian area, which is also the Laodicean area, these people had grown lukewarm because Colossae, Hierapolis, and Laodicea, tri-cities, were very opulent, had wealth, had plenty, and did not seem to feel a need for really walking with God as they should. So these two churches, within 30 years, no longer really had what they one time had. But 50 years after the book of Philippians was written, this Philippian church was still going strong, was still faithful, and had people in it that loved God, and only one problem could be found at the time, uh, 50 years later, that Polycarp wrote to the same church. So here are these three churches that are spiritual, and that's why I want to use those churches to speak to you about, first of all, because I believe you are a spiritual people. You love spiritual things. You love to grow in the spirit. You love a spiritual walk. And I, I know that. I've been here. And I know your pastor. And I, I know you people. And so I feel quite confident and quite at ease to bring to you the message that was brought to Ephesus, the message that was brought to Philippi, and the message that was brought to Colossae. For this message is a message of spiritual growth and strength. And in it are the answers to a, a surviving, a progressive, growing, great church. Of course, we know that the Apostle Paul wrote other letters. He wrote to the Thessalonians, for instance. That was an infant church. So he wrote, uh, he wrote some babes in Christ. He wrote two letters to them. First and second Thessalonians. And then he wrote two, uh, excuse me, three letters to a pastor or two pastors. Timothy and Titus. Two letters to Timothy and one letter to Titus that we still have with us at least. And then he wrote a personal letter to a friend. That friend was Philemon. And then he wrote a letter to the Hebrews, the Old Testament believers. Now, there may be some of you that would argue with me on that, but I feel I have a good enough argument for it that he wrote it. 
One reason I believe he wrote it is because Peter said in his second epistle, third chapter in the 15th verse, that Paul has written to you. So whoever Peter was written to, writing to, Paul had written to. In his beginning of the second chapter, he said that uh, Paul, or rather that he wrote the second epistle to the same people he wrote the first epistle to. So if you go to 1 Peter 1 and 1, you'll find that he wrote to the uh, strangers in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Bithynia, and so forth, that area above Asia. And so we know that Paul wrote to the same people that Peter wrote to, and those people were Hebrews. They were of the diaspora. They were those who were from the dispersion that came out of Babylon. So we know that Paul did write to some Hebrews in that part of Asia Minor, or just out of Asia Minor. And so since we know that, and we, he said also that in the writings that the apostle wrote are some things hard to be understood, and there's nothing, I don't suppose, in the New Testament harder to be understood than the book of Hebrews. So for these reasons, and for several others, I believe that the apostle wrote the book of Hebrews. So I put that in here with these. So Paul wrote to natural man, to carnal men, to spiritual men. He wrote to an infant church, having trouble understanding the coming of the Lord, the resurrection, and so forth. He wrote to some pastors to give them some guidelines in the working out of the leadership of their church churches. He wrote to a friend and told him to accept a slave that was coming back to him as no longer a slave, but as a member of the church. He wrote to Old Testament believers to tell them, tell them to cling to the truth that had been delivered in the past by the apostles and to continue to walk with God. So for these reasons, I am using Ephesians, Philippians, and Colossians because they are the greatest letters to that early church about the walk of a spiritual life. Now, if you people were carnal or if you were having trouble understanding some of the basic doctrines, I would use 1st 2nd Corinthians and Galatians or I might use uh, Thessalonians or some of these others. But you are not in that category. And so to fit you, I will begin with the book of, or to the Ephesians. Now, I'd like to ask you, if you would, to read this book a couple of times a day, if you could, once in the morning, once in the evening, and uh, refresh your mind about it as we go along, because we're just going to open the book up tonight, and eventually we will get into the real uh, essence of this book. Before I turn to Ephesians, though, I'd like to turn your attention to the book of Acts and show you where this church came from and who the Apostle Paul is actually speaking about when he writes to the Ephesians. Now, Paul had spent three years at Ephesus. The Acts, the 20th chapter, and the 31st verse. Acts 20, 31. Now, in this particular place, the Apostle Paul has come to Miletus, verse 15, and when he determined to sail by Ephesus because he would not spend time in Asia, he hurried up so that he could get to Jerusalem by the day of Pentecost. 
And from Miletus, then he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they came, he began to exhort them. And in his exhortation, he speaks this verse in 2031, Acts 2031. Therefore, watch and remember that by the space of three years, I ceased not night. I ceased not to warn everyone night and day with tears. So we know then that the Apostle Paul was in this city of Ephesus for three years. And we know that he had many devoted friends there. You do get a lot of friends when you stay in a place three years. You can get a lot of work done in three years. A lot of things can happen. And a lot of things did happen with the Apostle Paul. In fact, it was here that he taught in a Bible school in TBC for two full years. Actually, he had uh, uh, the equivalent of a three-year Bible school because he started teaching at 11 o'clock in the morning and taught until 4 in the afternoon. And the reason we know that is because he taught in the school of one Tyrannus who was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher of that day. And we know that the Greek philosophers held school from 6 in the morning until 11. And then they came back at 4 o'clock in the afternoon and had school from 4 to 6 daily, 6 days a week. And in those hours between, they always rented their school out to people that came through with various doctrines and so forth. That means every day from 11 to 4, this man would have a Bible school opened up to him and he began to teach and he taught there for two full years this is also the place where he baptized the 12 disciples of John in the 19th chapter of Acts baptized every one of them in the name of Jesus Christ they were all filled with the Holy Ghost spoke with other tongues of the Spirit of God gave them the utterance this is also the place where they brought $32,000 worth of witchcraft books and burned them in the streets. This is the city where the Apostle Paul walked uh, out onto a balcony, a place there, and prayed for people, and they came and brought him handkerchiefs and aprons. He anointed them with oil in the name of the Lord, and they took those aprons and handkerchiefs back home, laid them on the sick, and they were healed. So great things happen in this glorious church. Also, as he ended his ministry in the city of Ephesus, there came a time that uh, there was a worry and a fear among the Ephesian people because their god or goddess was Diana. And Demetrius, the silversmith, started a riot in the city and because of the riot he caused, the Apostle Paul left the city of Ephesus. And this was after, I believe, his second missionary journey into that area. So we have a great place here, a man that preached three years to this city. It was a great church. Now, when he preached to that city, he did not just reach those people. In fact, the Bible says that all of Asia heard the word. 
I think I can find that. Acts 19.10, this continued. Well, let me read the verse before. Divers were hardened and believed not, but he spake evil that way before the multitude. He departed from them, separated the disciples, disputing daily in the school of one Tyrannus. And this continued by the space of two years, so that all they which dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Gentiles. Now the area he's speaking of where all heard the word was this area that includes Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, Hierapolis, and Colossae, which were tri-cities. All of those areas would have been the area that would have heard the word of God. This, by the way, would be the same area that John wrote to when he wrote the book of Revelation from the Isle of Patmos. The Isle of Patmos was a short way out here in this area, and he was out there, wrote to these same churches in that same area. Now, the church at Laodicea and Colossae were interchangeable. You could write to either place, and they would all churches in that area would receive the, the writing. So when Paul preached from here at Ephesus, People from Smyrna and Pergamum and Thyatira and Sardis, Philadelphia and the area in the Tri-City area all came to the city of Ephesus because it was the hub city of that area. In fact, it was the hub city for all purposes, political, financial, economical, People always came down to Ephesus, and anything that happened in Ephesus always got out to these other cities. So the Apostle Paul preached in Ephesus, taught there for two years. The gospel spread to people that lived in these other cities so that they went back and started churches in those various areas. Now, the reason that we're telling you that is because I want you to know that this letter was not just written to the people at Ephesus. When it was written to Ephesus, it included all the branch churches of the Ephesian church. It's what we know as a circular letter written to the churches in Asia. And here is the reason we say that. Number one, the book has no personal greeting to it. It does not have any personal greeting. Now, it does say to the church at Ephesus, in the original manuscripts, that word Ephesus is left out, and it's a blank left there to be filled in by those that would receive the letters that went along. But there were no personal greetings. If you read most of the Apostle's writings, he gives a lot of greetings, especially at the end of the book. Greet uh, Jim and Sue and Bill and tell so-and-so hello and tell them they're praying for you and so forth. There's no such greetings in the book to the Ephesians. And that is amazing since Paul spent three years in this city. Anytime you'd spend three years in a city, you'd know the people there, wouldn't you? I mean, if you stayed here three years, you're going to pretty well know who everybody is, right? Right. All right. 
he told the Colossians that a letter was going to come to them and they should read it. Colossians 4.16. When this epistle, that's the letter to the Colossians, when this epistle is read among you, cause that it be read also in the church of the Laodiceans, and that you likewise read the epistle from Laodicea. So Laodicea was going to get a letter later on, and when they got it, they were to finish, when they finished reading, it were to send it to Colossae. The Colossians were to send their letter over to Laodicea. So that's one point that uh, we want to make, that there was an interchange of letters at this point. Then the next thing is, both these letters, Ephesians and Colossians, were sent by the same people and evidently at the same time. They were sent by Tychicus and Onesimus. Colossians 4, 7 and 9. All my state shall Tychicus declare unto you, who is a beloved brother and a faithful minister, fellow servant of the Lord. Ninth verse, with Onesimus, a faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you, they shall make known unto you all things which are done here. So he told them that they would be the ones that would send or would bring this letter. Ephesians 6.21, the Bible says, that you also may know my affairs and how I do, Tychicus, a beloved brother, and faithful minister in the Lord shall make known unto you all things whom I have sent unto you for the same purpose that you might know our affairs and how uh, that he might comfort your hearts. So both letters were sent by the same person to the same or to, to these different to these two churches, Ephesus and Colossae. Now, what makes that important or, or makes that uh, so noticeable is the fact that Ephesians is a book that deals with the body of the church in relation to the head. Colossians is dealing with the head of the church, Christ, and his relation to the body. So both these letters are written to as a sequel to one another. They belong to one another. They fit like hand in a glove. They help explain each other. So naturally, the Apostle Paul wanted both letters to be read by these churches so that they would get the full grasp of what he was saying because he wanted them to know and he wanted the Ephesians to know first about the body because they were a Jewish-Gentile church, about evidently 50-50%, half Jew, half Gentile, and already there was beginning to be a little bit of division among the brethren in that church, you know, the Jews always thought they were a little better than the Gentiles, and Gentiles always thought they were a little better than the Jew. And first thing you know, there was this division there, and the Apostle Paul wrote to them to tell them, listen, brethren, we are one body. We are one people. We have one spirit. We have one Lord. We have one faith. We have one baptism. We have one God, one Father of all, who is above all, through all, in you all, and this, there is a necessity for a unity of the Spirit of God. We are built up together, a body. We're not just a pile of rocks put together. 
but we are lively stones placed in place, every one of us in his particular place. Now, the new movement is to believe that we're just all some kind of a conglomerate, and we're just out here all, each just sort of piled up on the rock pile, and we're all lively stones in the pile. We're not any such thing. We are a church, a temple, built up a spiritual house, a habitation of God through the Spirit. We're a body. We're a people. I can't live without you. You can't live without me. You're supporting me. I'm supporting you. You take a a pile of rocks, none of them in particular supporting anybody or anything. There's no responsibility there. It's just a pile of rocks. But when you put those stones on top of one another, then first thing you know, you've got those that are supporting on each side, You've got those that are supporting above and below. You have a a ranking. You have an authority. You have a powerful structure that can do something, can hold something. And that's what this is about. We don't want to just be uh, just out here by ourselves, but every one of us has a particular place, has a particular job, has a particular talent, and we're all built up into the head, Christ Jesus. We are a body built up into a head. Glory to God. So Paul wrote to this church, and to these two churches, and he wrote the first letter to Ephesus because they would need to know first of all about that the, the middle wall of partition has been broken down between the Jew and the Gentile. And now there's peace between us all. And we're all, we all have an authority over us. The Lord gave us apostles, prophets, pastors, teachers, and evangelists for the perfecting of the saints and the work of the ministry to all come in the unity of the faith. He has given us these things to cause us to have a ministry within ourselves, to be a lively church, together, all of us together. So that book was to tell them that we're together in this thing. And he told them what God was doing in this day. And then he wrote to the gave the Colossians the other letter because in their country, they weren't in that particular church having problems, but it was an area of, of philosophy. It was an area of high-flung ideas. Gnosticism had already reached that area. And there was angel worship there and so forth. So they needed the other side of it more than Ephesus would. Now remember that the Apostle Paul never did go to Colossae. He's writing to people he has never seen. In fact, as far as I know, he never visited one of these churches. The only one he ever visited was Ephesus. All these are branch churches from Ephesus. All that came out of the two years of teaching at Tyrannus Bible School. Now, the fact that he wrote two letters that were sequel and that he gave them by the same men and left one at Ephesus and the other at Colossae, and these facts, the fact that the the letter has no personal uh, writings about it, tells us that evidently 
this man was writing to a group of churches and not just to this one. Let me also add this. When Paul writes to one of his churches, he constantly alludes to his former relations to it. You read the Thessalonians, Galatians, and Corinthians, or any, most any of the other of Paul's writings. He always talks about how he did things when he was there before. Here he says nothing about what he did there that's personal. No greeting, no spe special recommendation. And in fact, Paul is unacquainted with some of these people. Ephesians 1.15, the Apostle Paul says, Wherefore I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and love to all the saints, I've been praying for you. I heard about your faith in the Lord. A man had been pastor in the church three years and he heard about their faith. He knew about their faith. Ephesians 3.2, If you have heard the dispensation of the grace of God which is given to me, if you've heard of it. And I've been preaching to you three years and you haven't heard about my dispensation of the gospel. See, he's talking to more people than just at Ephesus. He's got in his mind other churches, other people that will read this that have never seen him. So he says, if you've heard of this. So when he writes to a particular church, even if he's not been there, like when he writes to Colossae or when he writes to Rome, he assumes a personal a tone, but the way he uses this one, evidently it is a circular letter. So much for that. Now, this letter was written to help these people to continue to walk with God and to grow in the grace of the Lord. It was written in, as one of the four prison epistles, the others being Ephesians, Colossians, or this one is Ephesians, Colossians and Philemon. And this letter was written to help these people take a stand and be firm and united together. Stand together. And... If they had listened to what this letter said, 30 years later, John would not have said to them in the book of Revelation, you have left your first love. It's not a matter of having it tonight. It's a matter of keeping it. It's not a matter of being strong today. It's a matter of staying strong. A lot of churches started 50 years ago, 70 years ago. A lot of churches started 20 years ago, 10 years ago, that are not here anymore. A lot of churches have started 50 years ago that are still here, but they don't preach the same message. What I desire is a church that's here tonight, that's going to be here next time I come, and 50 years from now it'll still be here if Jesus has not come. Praise the Lord. I believe... He can have a church in Madison, Wisconsin that can still be a strong, powerful church 50 years from today if he tarries that long. I believe that. Praise God. And I believe he will have it. But it keeps a steady walk with God because these, this church that I'm using tonight was one that left their first love within 30 years of the time 
that this was written. Now, this has been called a oneness book, not because of one God. That's what we usually think of when we think of the oneness. We think of one God. But it is a book of oneness because it has designs, uh, God's design in bringing all nations into one body and all people into one being. And though the church is a complex organism with a lot of functions to it, it is to work in harmony with all of its parts. Now, you'll notice that there are no troubles listed in this church. It is a church that uh, is a very good church. And I appreciate the church that was at Ephesus. Let me give you a few scriptures tonight that show us their unity. In chapter 1, verse 10, the Apostle Paul started out to tell them the reason that Jesus Christ is bringing us, or the reason he has a church. Verse 4 said you, he's chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he's made us accepted in the Beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of his grace, wherein he is abounded toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known unto us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure which he has purposed in himself. Now, here's the first verse that talks about us being a unit, a body, together. And that's verse 10. In the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, even in him. Now that's what God's ultimate goal is, to bring everything into one. He's going to do that one of these days when he brings all the angelic hosts into one and does away with all those that rebelled against him back in the revolt of Satan. At the same time, he'll bring the church, the body of Christ, with the Jews, the Old Testament heroes of faith, and all of them together will be brought into one place to be with him forever and eternally, all together in one. Now, I know there are those that teach otherwise, but I believe tonight that God's ultimate goal is to bring everything together into one. So that when the dispensations of time have been finished, he can gather together in one all things in Christ, both in heaven and in earth, all of it brought into him. Then in verse 23, says, Which is his body, the fullness of him that filleth all in all. And then chapter 2, verses 14 and 15, speaking of the Jew and the Gentile, said, He is our peace, who has made both Jew and Gentile one, and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. He abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, for to make in himself of twain one new man, so making peace. And then, verse 21, he said, In whom 
all the building fitly framed together grows up unto a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are built together for a habitation of God through the Spirit. In other words, he is building a building. He is putting together right now a building. Actually, right now, he is preparing the stones for that building. And in the quarry of life, he is making us all of one shape or one form or another. He's working on each one of us individually. But I read in 1 Kings, the 6th chapter and the 7th verse, a type of what Jesus is doing today and that which the apostle is dealing with here in this 21st verse of Ephesians 2. This is when Solomon's temple was being built. 1 Kings 6, 7. And the house, when it was in building, was built of stone made ready before it was brought thither, so that there was neither hammer, nor axe, nor any tool of iron heard in the house while it was in building. So out there in the field, And the Bible says the field is the world. Out in the field, God is putting together some blocks for a building. And he said when that is complete, they took that into the city and assembled it. They assembled that building, but it was made in the field. All the parts were put together, or all the parts were cut out in the field. And then he took all of those into the city of Jerusalem, and he put them all together after he'd spent so much time out here digging them out of the field. And it was here that the chisel had to come upon the uh, stone. It was here that the hammer blows were made. It was here that pieces were cut off. It was here that the chips had to fly. It was out in the field that the building was cut on, worked on, dealt with. But the assembling took place in the city of Jerusalem. And the Apostle Paul is telling us basically the same thing. That God today is working on a temple, a building. He hasn't put it together yet, but he's still cutting on it. He's still chipping on it. He's still cutting on it. He's still making marks on it. He's still engraving in it. And the, the work is going on here in the world. And one of these days, he's going to take all of these stones and put them together in one place. And there, there will be no sound of hammer blow. There, there will be no chiseling. There, there will be no sound of the axe or the saw. Because there, 
it'll be assembled into one place. But tonight, he's still cutting. He's still chopping. He's still chipping away. Now they tell me that in Solomon's quarries, there are more rocks there that have been cut on than there are that were put in the temple. They worked on them a while, but they didn't come out right. They had faults in them. They had flaws somewhere. They chipped on them and they wouldn't, it wouldn't work. They'd crack. They, they wouldn't respond. And so they left them there. And the same thing is true when he assembles this, this building in the, the holy city. When he assembles his together, friend, he's going to leave a whole lot that he worked on that never would quite conform to what he was doing. Did you know that we lose from 80 to 90% of all our Pentecostal people that receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost and are baptized in Jesus' name? From 80 to 90% of every person that either receives the baptism of the Holy Ghost or at least is baptized in Jesus' name and attends our churches, we lose them. You know why? They can't take the cutting. Can't take the chipping. They can't take the preparation he's doing now. But you see, he's got the work on you now. You've got deficiencies in you. Well, I know you think you're pretty good. But you see, all of us have something that needs worked on. Every one of us has something that is in need of changing. Every one of us. And God's going to change it if He can. And He's not going to do it arbitrarily. He's not going to come down one day and all of a sudden everything is brand new. He's going to bring something against you. It's going to be something that causes a real hammer blow in your life. And He's trying His best to work on our lives and change the characteristics that are not what they are way of doing it and he does it for him to take the very problems that would catastrophe in the world the tragedy for those that are lost tragedy in the world becomes uh, a stepping stone for you it becomes your food it becomes a a blessing now there are some scriptures that make you know this you you want to understand the scriptures for instance you said find it all joy when you fall into the body of temptation now who is it now I've heard more preachers argue that well of course he didn't really mean you to have any joy when you fall into temptation and Jesus said when you were persecuted you were exceeding glad well, he knows you can't really be glad. And that is, he said, love your enemy. And of course, you can't really love your enemy, you know. Well, if these things aren't true, then you really can't do them, why in the world are they put in the book? The Apostle Paul said, we joy in tribulation. We joy when we go through pressures and trials and troubles. He said, in all these things, we're more than conquerors. 
things, but in these things. And this is what makes us a conqueror. If it were not for these things, we would never be a conqueror. If it were not for these things, we could never grow. So let me talk to you just a little bit tonight about the ways that God does things. Now, in the book of John 15, the first few verses, Jesus made a rather remarkable statement. He said, first of all, that he was divine, and that every branch in that vine that does not bear fruit, he takes that branch away. But every branch that will bear fruit, he purges that fruit or that branch, that it may bring forth more fruit. Now you are clean or purged through the word which I've spoken to you. Abide in me, and I in you. If the branch cannot bear fruit itself, it cannot. You cannot bear fruit of yourself. You have to have a purging before you can ever bear fruit. So Jesus said he had to uh, purge you. Now, how does he do that? Does the Lord periodically come down and just cut on you? I doubt it. Because he's got too many other agents that are glad to do the job. So he doesn't uh, have to, really. So he moves upon, he comes down and moves upon some purging instrument. That happens to be some problem that comes into your life. And when he moves upon that, it causes an action against you. Now, you could react the same way. And if you did, you would lose the whole purpose for this thing coming into your life. You missed it. You blew it. But if you will react the right way, whatever happens to you will turn to not just to your good, but it will make you more like Christ. It will conform your image to Him. Now, remember that, uh, just right quick, what the Apostle Paul said in Romans 8, a very familiar scripture to you, I'm sure, where he said, All things work together, Romans 8, 28. All things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the call according to His purpose. For whom He did foreknow, He did predestinate, and we've read two or three scriptures on predestination, and I hope you understand that, because I'm not going to deal with that one. <laughs> he did predestinate to be conformed to the image of his Son. Now, that's the purpose of it all, to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. All things are working together in your life to make you conform to the image of Jesus Christ. That's the purpose of it. That's what it's all about. So, a man hates you. What should you do about it? Now, this may sound strange to you, but you ought to thank God for that. First Thessalonians. <laughs> Praise the Lord. I know I sound ridiculous right now, but you just hang on there. Great. Great. I'll be through that. I'll be with you in a minute. You just, just hang on. 1 Thessalonians 5.18 He 
be thankful in all things. However it goes, thank the Lord for all things. How does it go? Somebody's got it by now, answer. In everything give thanks. For this is the will of God for you, right? In Christ Jesus. Yeah, it would have to be in Christ Jesus, wouldn't it? <laughs> Amen. But in everything give thanks. Now, I've also heard people say that, well, of course, you know, you can't thank the Lord for any, just everything because there's some things that are bad and you just can't thank God for bad things. Well, I beg to differ with you. Now, one instance of this that I personally know of was Sister Freeman. In fact, she's the one that sort of got me looking at this. She gave a testimony last time she was home that when Brother Freeman was in that automobile accident, you remember the other man was killed? And Brother Freeman was laid up for a long time and he was near death. And she got down to pray for him and she was pleading and fearful and wondering why, oh God, why? And the Lord said, thank me for this. And she said, well, God, I can't. And he said, you thanked me for this. And she had a real struggle with that thing. Finally, she said, all right. I don't really feel any thankfulness in my heart. But you said do it, and I will. And she thanked the Lord for it. And there were so many complications. Things just went from bad to worse. In the first place, they took him the opposite direction, and he was left in a little police station to recuperate rather than taking him to a hospital. And he was left there for several hours before anything was done. And he was dying. That man was about to lose his life. But uh, one night, cut a long story short, she was praying and another brother was praying and Brother Freeman were all praying way in the night and suddenly she said a light shone in her room, just filled up the room, and she knew that God had touched him. She met the man the next morning and the man said, Sister Lima, uh, Freeman, you'll never believe this, but last night at I think 2 or 3 o'clock, whatever it was in the morning, a light shine in my room, just fill the room with light. And she said, yes, I do believe you. The same light came into my room. And they went to Brother Freeman's room, and there he was sitting up. He was fine. The Lord had healed him. And I don't have the statistics and all the things with me about what did happen, but... Uh, there was a man that was there at that police station when Brother Freeman was left there that had, if I'm not mistaken, either 2,000 or 2,500 people under his ministry that he was leading as far as he could lead them. But he wasn't in the truth. And the people he was leading believed him and followed him very explicitly. And this man came to a realization that he needed more. He needed something else. And so he remembered that preacher that was so deathly ill and the faith that man had 
in that little police station. So he went up to find that man, and that man happened to be Brother Freeman. He found him, had Brother Freeman come and teach him, who taught him about this glorious message that we believe, and 10,000 people in Africa received this message that we have tonight because Brother Lee Freeman, I don't know why I keep saying leaving, both of them are good friends of mine, but Brother Freeman's illness and what happened to him was not really a tragedy after all. God was working something out. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. Hallelujah. Now, I serve a great God. And this scripture says, all things work together for good. How many of you people believe that? Praise God. Uh, That's about 90%. That's pretty good. I usually don't get that kind of response. But I believe that. Now, that means everything that happens in your life God uses it for a reason. And most of the time, he's using it to purge your branches to get you to bear more fruit. So the first thing you ought to do when a problem comes your way is say, God, I thank you for this. Hallelujah. And then look and see if you caused it in any way. Now, this chart may be familiar to some of you if you've seen a particular fellow that used it. And he said for nobody to mention his name, so I'm not going to say his name. But this chart's not not mine, it's his. The material's mine, and uh, the way I'm using it's mine, but the chart happens to be his. Now, he'd never recognize it, really. (laughs) The next thing you need to do is look for the cause. Did I personally cause this to happen? In other words, this man hates me out here. Did I kill his dog? You know? Well, this fellow hates me. Is it because I put that fence up between our two buildings? Did I do something that caused him to hate me? If I did, I can usually take care of it. And in doing so, I will usually win a friend. So if I caused it, then, then uh, I can do something about it. But tonight, the ones I'm talking about really are the ones you didn't cause. You can't help it. There, something happened, and, and you are not the cause of it. When that happens, the next thing for you to do is look for God's objective. What is God trying to do in your life? Now, the way you find out is go to the Word of God. Now, the best place to start is Galatians 5.22. And Matthew 5, 1 to 10. Because Galatians 5, 22 gives you the gifts, or the fruit of the Spirit. Matthew 5, 1 to 10 gives you what we know as the Beatitudes. And in those two areas, usually you will find what God is trying to work out in your life. So what you do then, you go to the Word of God, and then you pray about it. And as you pray, the Spirit of God will reveal to you what the problem is and what you need to do about it. 
So the Spirit in your prayer and the reading of the Word of God, the Word, the Spirit, and your prayer will lead you to a place where this man that hates you will need you. Now in the book of Proverbs, 25th chapter and the 22nd verse, the Bible said if your enemy is hungry, feed him, and you will heap coals of fire on his head. Ah, I get my revenge, eh? Now that is another one of those misunderstood scriptures. Of course, in the uh, in the Old Testament, they would understand that, but we are not Old Testament people, so it's hard for us to understand. But let me explain it to you like this: In the tabernacle, they had what was called an ark of the uh, an, an altar of incense. On that altar of incense, there were coals of fire. They brought spices into the room and placed them on that altar of incense, on those coals of fire. And when that coals of fire touched those spices and that incense, it filled the room. Now before, there was the smell of smoke. There was the smell of the sacrifice. A horrible, stinking, animal-burning smell. But now this precious perfume filled the air and just pushed away all that heavy smoke. Now that's in the tabernacle. You knew that was there, didn't you? An altar of incense. You knew about that? You knew that the man put a coal, put coals of fire on that. And that he put incense on it and made it fill the room. Also, you know that in heaven, Jesus said, he took the prayers of the saints. And in heaven, on the altar of incense in heaven, he poured the prayers of the saints. What for? To fill the holy city with the perfume of the prayers of God's people. And this is talking about the same coals of fire. You heap coals of fire on his head does not mean you get a retaliation, you get vengeance. Nowhere do you get any vengeance. The Bible never gives you the opportunity to have vengeance. In fact, it says when your enemy has a calamity, don't rejoice over that. It's nothing to rejoice about. What's happening is your brother hated you. So you carried him a chicken dinner. When you did, you put coals of fire on his head. In other words, what you did, you gave him an opportunity to say, Thank you. You're a good man. Boy, you're better than I thought you were. The words from his mind, the thoughts from his heart, something happens in him that causes that coals of fire you put on there to bring forth an incense. A praise that fills the room and changes the whole thing from hate to love. Understand me? You are giving that man an opportunity to praise, to produce love. You're not just really scorching him with coals of fire. 
You know, that's the way it's taught a lot of times. You, you, you hear people the rest of your life say, boy, you'll really get them if you'll just do good to them. Uh, they just misunderstand. Don't, uh, don't be too hard on them. Most people don't understand that. But it's the truth. It's the truth. Praise God. You see, what happens is this man, uh, you, you have a need for love to be manifest in your life. You can't have any love manifest in you that's worth much unless there's something there that's opposite of that. Or it's, Jesus said it's easy to love those that love you. <laughs> he said hey, they all do that. Even those Gentiles out there, they do that. They love those that love them. That's nothing. But what I want you to do is love your enemy. So when your enemy comes in and he's got uh, hatred in his heart, you respond to him the right way. And when you do, you'll produce love. I want you to produce fruit. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. Now, that's true with every one of these fruits of the Spirit. So the first thing a man ought to do is thank God for the problem that comes in his life. Now, I'll tell you why. Because you're dedicated to God. If you're dedicated to God, you belong to Him. If you belong to God, you're His responsibility. You are God's responsibility. Because you belong to Him. Now, as long as you belong to the devil, you're not His responsibility. So if you have a car wreck and you belong to the devil... He lets you and the devil figure it out. But if you have one, you belong to him. If you believe him, he'll work that thing to where something will happen in your life that will change not only you, but everybody involved in it. Oh, hallelujah. It doesn't matter what happens. He can work it out. Praise the Lord. Now, all right, I'm God's responsibility. Now, excuse me. God is bigger than the problem I'm in, right? Is there any problem that God that God's not any bigger than that problem? Anybody know the problem God can't handle? All right, God's bigger than the problem, right? God could stop it any time He wanted to, couldn't He? But He's not stopping it, is He? So evidently he's got something in mind for me. It has a purpose in it. And after I thank God for it, because I know God's bigger than that and God can take care of me, then I look for the cause. I see if there's any reason that I did it or caused it. 1 Corinthians 11, 31, 32 says, I ought to judge myself so that I'm not judged. If I'll judge myself, then the Lord won't judge me. His judgment's pretty severe. <laughs> Praise the Lord. But if I'll do it myself, then I get off a lot easier. He lets me do that. He's a great God. He won't be any harder on me than, than he has to be. Because I'm his child. I mean, you do your child the same way. If, uh, if uh, Johnny has... Uh, you know, he ran off, went swimming when you told him not to or something like that. And then he comes in and he really uh, does something 
good about it and he lets you know he really he really takes care of his own judgment he does something that uh, he knows you know he doesn't like to do but he did it just because he was sorry for what he did wrong well you're not going to touch the kid no he's he's taking care of his own judgment if he'll take care of his own judgments you won't have to do it well you'd be glad of that wouldn't you wouldn't it be wonderful if every time a kid did wrong he'd come in and say you know i did the wrong thing there i think i better straighten up and and he'd, he'd make amends for what he did now wouldn't that be great and he'd never get the paddle i don't know if you folks use it now i, I was raised with the board of education <laughs> all right after you thank god for it and look for the cause you you want to know did i in any way cause this to happen have i done things in the past that caused it have i neglected to do something i should have done in this life if you have make amends for it ask god to help you to to straighten it out if you haven't then look for the ultimate objective what is it that god's trying to work out in my life now you can expect the opposite of what you need to come into your life in other words if you need peace in your life you can expect confusion If you need patience, you can expect some responsibilities that are irksome to come into your life. If you need love, you can expect some hate to come to you. If you need joy, you can expect some sorrow to come your way. Whatever you need, you can expect the opposite to come into your life. You can just expect it. Why? Because God's going to purge you. He's going to make you a vessel of honor. He's going to work on your life. And Jesus himself did it. Now, he didn't need peace. But he wanted to give it to others. And you may, don't, it may be that you don't need peace, but you need to give peace to someone else. And Jesus stood that day while... Annas and Campus and all the officers said, Crucify him! And they were so afraid Pilate wouldn't. And Pilate was wringing his hands saying, Oh, if there was a way to get out of this thing, I wish I could wash my hands of it all. So he was confused. The Sanhedrin was confused. The populace was confused. Mary, his mother, was confused. Everybody was in a turmoil but Jesus. And Jesus was trying his best to offer peace. And where he could, he gave it. For he stood at the cross and looked down at his own mother. He knew that his own brothers did not believe in him. And because they did not believe in him, nor what his mother had said in earlier years, they had already turned away from her. She was alone in the world because Joseph, his dad, died. The other brothers and sisters no longer craved to her, so she's alone. Now, today a woman alone is not so bad, but in her day, it's pathetic. And here's a woman with turmoil in her heart, seeing her son die on a cross. She knows he's the Son of God, and she knows she's going to be left alone when he's gone. 
And Jesus gave her peace. He turned to John and he said, or he turned to her and he said, Woman, behold thy son. Son, behold thy mother. And he turned her over to John. And of course, tradition says she died in Ephesus where John was pastoring. But Jesus gave that woman peace that day. He tried to give it to everybody that was there. He tried to give it to Pilate, and Pilate wouldn't accept it. They didn't want it. But he was offering it. He was handing it out. There was two men on the cross. One of them wanted peace in his heart. But in all that confusion, he didn't know how to get it. But Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. He brought peace to hearts that were in that mess of a confusion that day. You look at the Apostle Paul. He and Silas were in jail. What did they do? They did exactly what I'm talking about here. They thanked God. They praised the Lord. They began to worship. Most of us would have said, oh boy, this dun dingy dungeon, this cold, dark, damp place. I don't know what we did to deserve this. This is horrible. Oh God, please deliver us out of this. We would have spent the night in prayer begging God to please get us out of there. But this man began to thank God. Oh, began to praise the Lord. Praise God. And in that time of confusion and sorrow and those sad circumstances, these men changed depression into victory. For there was a jailer there ready to commit Harry Carey. And when you start to commit suicide, brother, you're pretty depressed. But these men sang the songs, praised God, and a revival broke out. You see, they went at it the right way. They thanked God for what was happening in their lives. Oh, hallelujah. Praise. Praise the Lord. So I am fully convinced that when things happen to you, you ought to thank God for it. Because God is going to work out everything in your life. He's going to do it. You can depend on Him doing it. You can expect Him to do it. Praise God. Everything that happens to you. Why? He is building that city. He is building that building. And so in order to do so, He has to cut on some of us sometime. Now, He cuts on some of us more than others. And we sometimes don't understand that. Why does He have to go through? Through, why don't you have to go through as much as I do? Oh, I've really been going through it. I tell you, it just seems like the Lord is always bringing me into some trial and some test. Well, this fellow, why, all the Lord ever did to him was just take him through three or four little things and it was all over. Why don't I get by as easy as he did? Because the Lord's working on you for some special thing up there. Not all those stones are alike. Some of those stones make pillars. Some of them make chapters at the top. Some of them make a beautiful ornament. Some of them are just plain old square stones. You look at the, the easiest stones to put in this building are those, those ones that, that are in the wall. They're the easiest. They're, they're already shaped and fixed. Nothing to it. There's a whole lot of us. All God seemed to have to do is just knock two or three little chips off and and uh, we just go through life 
serving the Lord from then on, and everything's fine. But some of us, he keeps cutting, chipping, working, and we cry, oh, God, why me? Because he wants something out of it. He wants you to be something that uh, is, is really worthwhile, not only in that world to come, but here in this life tonight, yeah. this day and time, God wants you to be something worthwhile for him. God is working something out in your life. And so God will use these kind of problems that come into your life. God will use those that are in authority over you in your life. And everybody is to be under authority. Everybody. I don't believe there's a one of us that's to be without it. God expects us to be. I won't go through that now because that's a later part of this study. But God is working something out and causing us to produce in this present world. So because of these things, the Apostle Paul wrote and said in Ephesians 2, 20 and 21, 22, We are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, not just thrown together, friend, we are fitly framed. Yes, amen. Fitly framed. Praise God. God. And if you get into that city, you're going to have to be fitly framed. And yet there'll be some who say, well, but God just put too much on me. No, he won't do that. He'll not put on you anything you cannot bear. He will with every temptation make a way of escape. There's no temptation taking you but what is common to all men. God knows what you're going through. He knows what's happening in your life. And he wants you to believe him when it happens. Have faith in him. For without faith it's impossible to please God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. And that he's a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It works by faith. So when these things begin to happen in your life, if you go the way of doubt and fear grips your heart and you cannot believe anything can come out of it, and you don't let it work out those things in your life, then you're not purged. And if you're not purged, he said he throws those branches out. John 15, 2. Uh, throw those away. Can't use them. Praise God, because he wants it to produce. In fact, to me, this is God's method of evangelism. Now, I am not knocking anything else you would do. I have knocked on thousands of doors and I'm willing to knock on thousand more. I'm willing to hand out tracts. I'm willing to work in a bus ministry, a campus ministry, a death ministry, jail ministries. I've worked in all of them. I've enjoyed them. They've been great. But I truly believe tonight that God wants us to produce fruit. I do know this, that over 90% of the people that we went into the church are friends, not strangers. And I do know that we win them by producing fruit of the Spirit in our lives. So I believe that Jesus Christ had that in mind when he told those people to produce. He did not tell me to produce another Christian. He told me to produce fruit. And that fruit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, meekness, kindness, gentleness, goodness, those fruits in my life, if I'll produce that, that man is hungry for fruit. 
You're in a world that's hungry for love, yeah. mercy, grace, yeah. faith, love, joy, peace. They're hungry for it. They're starving to death for it. Give it to them. Produce it. Oh, hallelujah. Praise God. And when you produce it, they eat your fruit. And right in the middle of that fruit is a seed. And the seed is the new life for more fruit. And if they will partake of that fruit and let the seed germinate in their life, they too become Christians. And the fruit reproduces again. And it just goes on and on and on and on and on and never ceases. Praise God. Thank you, Lord. Praise God. Hallelujah. People say, I don't have much of a ministry. I don't have much I can do for God. I'm not very qualified. Friend of mine, everyone he ever brought into his kingdom is a fruit producer. You can produce love, but you can't produce it unless somebody comes against you that doesn't love. Yeah, but you don't know what they did to me. They just really hurt my little feelings. Good. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> Glory. Now you might be able to do something about it. Praise God. There was a lady that uh, people kept coming over and neighbor kept stealing her chickens. She kept noticing they just kept drilling one at a time. She knew who it was. So she went out there, got chickens cooked. She did just what I'm talking about here. She prayed about it, thanked the Lord for it, and the Lord told her how to take care of the situation. You see, if you will pray and, and read the Word of God and just wait on God, He will make a way for you to produce the fruit. Now, let me say this. Usually, if somebody has done something to hurt you, if you do what I'm telling you, it won't be long until they'll need you. Until you have something they need. And it's all it's almost uh, automatic and natural for you then to tongue-in-cheek say, Oh, too bad, too bad. <laughs> really sorry that happened to you. <laughs> I'm really sorry that happened. And inside you're just chuckling. You're thrilled pink. Inside there's something that says, Uh-huh, I told you, I knew it happened. But you see what God's doing? He's making them need you so that you can come to them and produce fruit. So that woman went out to the hen house and got a chicken. I think even she got a couple of them. And she cooked those things up and took them down there and told those folks, I just been thinking about you folks and I want to come and just have a good chicken dinner with you. And I cooked the chicken. Here it is. I'm bringing it to you. And uh, everything was real quiet for a while around me. Nobody quite knew what to say. But they had their dinner and this one was real friendly and nice. You know it wasn't but a few weeks till that woman in that house was going to church with this lady. Because she knew there was something different about that because everybody knew where those chickens were going. And then, of course, she got her children to go. It wasn't too long until 
the man was going, the whole family came in. How did come to come in? There was some fruit produced in a life. Did something. You did something. And, and you can do good things when these things are not present and it doesn't do a thing. I can, uh, I've helped a lot of people at times when they, you know, they really didn't need my help. They could have used anybody's help. But I just helped and so it didn't really do much. But when I do it and it hurts, when I've gone the second mile, when I turn the cheek, when I have obeyed what Jesus said do, and I thank God for it, I've really been thankful. And now I can see why Paul would say, we joy in tribulation. We rejoice in tribulation. I heard one of our own preachers not long ago say, of course you can't really rejoice uh, when you're in tribulation, you know. But, but what did he say then? Well, why did he say it if you, if you don't? You see, he knew a secret. There are some principles of God. And if we can learn those principles, we can be victorious. We can be fruit-bearing Christians. Yes, amen. Praise the Lord. That's what I like about Search for Truth. You don't have to be a theologian to teach it. In fact, it's better if you're not. And the thing is, you get in a place and you start teaching it, and you may be as dense as a gourd about the Bible yourself. All you know is how to sort of go through the thing a little bit. But you're being there. You're being a friend and taking advantage of helping somebody somewhere along the way. And you're becoming acquainted with them and getting into their heart. And first thing you know, you'll produce some fruit in that home. Yes, praise God. And they'll see that. Oh, hallelujah. And they'll want what you've got. Yes. There was one person, one preacher, that taught that search for truth in a place. And when he got through, sweating and begging and pleading, and, and oh, brother, he just really gone through it. And when he got through, those folks said, said, Reverend, we don't understand a thing in the world you've been talking about. We don't understand a thing. But that spirit you've got is beautiful. And we want that. And we're going to come to your church. I don't know a thing in the world about this stuff you're talking about. But if it's for us, we want it. And it sounds pretty good. I don't know anything about it. But, but now that spirit you've got. <laughs> I like that. There's just that. that you, you just always have a smile on your face. You're always full of joy. And I like that. And we've been in depression. We've been sorrowful. We've, we've had troubles. And when you, we've noticed during this 10 weeks, you've had some difficulties and troubles you've talked to us about, and you're not the least bit discouraged over it. We want that. Glory to God. Hallelujah. Listen, you're in a world that tells you you can't stay on the mountaintop. You're in a world that tells you you can't keep the victory. In fact, you get a little bit away from Pentecost, and they'll tell you you've got to sin all the time. Every day, you're a constant sinner. That's true. They will. In fact, there was a lady where I pastored that told me that one day. She said, oh, but Brother Griffin, we've got to sin a little bit every day. I said, you don't. <laughs> Lord, have mercy on us. What have I been doing? Why have I preached to you? I said, she said well, what do you mean? I said, oh, I don't believe I have to sin a little bit every day. <clears throat> You folks don't believe in it. Praise 
I thought everything was so quiet. I just thought I wondered. Praise God. I believe God can give us the victory. I believe we can walk with God. I believe we can be faithful to God. We can be a building fitly framed together. We can take the cuts, the chiselings, the workings on us by the Spirit of God that comes in with the powers around us, the pressures, the problems, and the troubles, the worries, and the fears, and all these things that happen to us. And by those things, we can get the victory, keep the victory. We can be winners. We were not made to be losers. God did not make us to be quitters. God did not bring us into this thing just to see what would happen to us. He chose us. He knew what he was doing. He handpicked you. Praise God. He handpicked you. He wanted you. He bypassed some of your fathers and some of your mothers and some of your brothers and some of your sisters and some of your children. He bypassed loved ones and friends and reached out in a world and picked you out and said, I want that one. Why did he choose you? He saw something he wanted in his temple. He saw something he wanted in his kingdom. And he's going to have it. It's going to be there. And you can be the one that plugs up that hole that fits in that niche. You can be the one that's that block, that, that rock, that stone, lively stones, built up a spiritual house. You can be because he's working on your it. But you've got to take his work on you. There just happen to be a few things in you that are not quite right yet. Praise the Lord. That's why we're here. That's why we come to church. Praise the Lord. I believe there's people in this church that have real needs. That's why I never could understand these fellows that came to to worship God because there's people there that are either hypocrites or they're not right with God or they got problems. In fact, there is a preacher. I was in a place just recently and a preacher told the pastor, said, I won't come back to this church anymore as long as that person is in this church. You get rid of them and I'll come back to church. I told that pastor when he told me that, I said, I wonder what he'd do if he got sick. I wonder if he'd go to the hospital. He better not. If he does, he's a hypocrite. Because that hospital is full of sick folks. That's the truth. You go in that place and there's sick people everywhere you look. Did you know that? Oh, friend, you better never go to a hospital. They got sick people. Did you know that people die in those things every night? You better not go. They actually die there. Oh, but I go there to get healed. I go there for the good it'll do me. There are physicians there. That's exactly why I come to church. There's a physician here. Sure, there's the sick that come. Sure, there's the spiritually malignant that come. Yes, there are those that walk in this church that are not quite right. But God's not finished with us yet. God's still working on us. Praise God. Amen. Yes, you can find something wrong with a fellow across the aisle from you. You better believe it. But if we could open up your little heart, we'd find something in there too. Glory. Amen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. My time's about up. <laughs> praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. So yes, there are people here 
There should be people here that have real problems. There should be people here that have real needs. Oh, you mean in a church? In a holy place like that? Yes, friend, in a church. What's a church for? It's to cut off those old rough edges. It's to make something worthwhile out of worthless nothings. It's to take us from our confusion and make something beautiful out of our lives. It's to take us from our weary world of sin and sorrow and disgrace and put something in us of beauty, the beauty of holiness to shine upon our face, the call of the Lord to fill our hearts. Glory to God. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Well, I'm going to quit a minute too early. We got started late tonight, but it's been good to be with you tonight. Praise God. We try to give you an introduction into the book of Ephesians. And uh, maybe next time we can really get into something interesting. May the Lord bless you, Brother Greg. Praise God. Oh, hallelujah.